Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 116. Good to be back with you here again tonight. Uh, and uh, we are should be getting right up to the beginning of the poem. This is the A. Arundel is a Mariner poem, Bilbo's magnum opus, poetically speaking, I think. I don't think Bilbo... I mean, of course, you know, The Road Goes Ever On is Bilbo's signature poem, but I think clearly the A. Arundel was a Mariner poem is his greatest poem, uh, and certainly one of my very favorites. Uh, and fair warning, I'm going... Since we're already completely, hopelessly, ludicrously indulgent in this chapter, as if I'm counting correctly, tonight's class is the 23rd class that we are doing in many meetings. Um, very many meetings indeed, apparently. But anyway, um, since, since we, you, know, you, uh, uh, you know, you might as well get hanged for sheep as a lamb. Um, we're going to talk our, what, when we get to the poem, what the plan is going to be, we're going to talk our way through the poem, uh, just kind of, you know, reading it as is, thinking of it as Bilbo's poem there, uh, and then we're, and, and thinking about how that poem works. And then I'm going to go back kind of like I did with the, um, uh, with the Elbert, uh, the Elbert poem, the Uthian poem. Um, earlier on, the the the, the Tenubial, uh poem, my other favorite poem, uh, and I'm going to do a full class where I'm going to mostly lecture as we're going to be looking at the history of that poem because the history of the Arundel was a Mariner poem is, in my opinion, the most fascinating history of any of Tolkien's poems. In fact, uh, when I was asked to contribute a chapter on Tolkien's poetry. Uh, for the Oxford uh, Guide to Tolkien, um, I, uh, I, I started off doing like a survey of Tolkien and like the, it ended up just being like an in-depth discussion of this poem, basically, in its history. Uh, <clears throat> because it's, I think it's not only like really cool and really fun, um, but I th for me, it is one of the most illustrative moments uh, in Tolkien's poetry. As far as looking at how Tolkien's storytelling and his poetic composition uh, kind of comes t together. Sorry, Siri is yelling at me out of my watch for no obvious reason, uh, like she does. Anyway, so that's uh, I, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So that's coming up. But we're not going to get, we're probably not going to get there tonight. If we're exceptionally fortunate, we might do the first stanza tonight. But no promises. We're probably going to do that next week. Um, okay. So uh, then let's uh, jump into things. Just a couple announcements here this week. First, uh, we have um, the two, our two moots, which are coming up, of course, that I've been announcing. We've got uh, New England moot, which is coming up this coming, uh, uh, this coming Sunday. So um, uh, Sunday week, basically, the, the, the 29th of um, September. So we're only a week and a half away now from our first ever New England moot, which is super exciting. And... Um, uh, and that's going to be great. So you can register all the way up until the day of the event. Uh, so, you know, if you're, you can, you can, you know, you can sort of show up and register there, but we can't, or at least to the day before the event at the least. But if you want food, register sooner rather than later, um, because we're going to have lunch and stuff too. So we want to make sure that we, you know, know arrangements for that. Um, so uh, that's first. Second is Middle Moot, which is on October 12th. Uh, out in Waterloo, Iowa. And again, you can register for that uh, pretty much right up to the date. But again, if you want to eat, it's better for you to register sooner. Uh, so those are, those are our two 
most proximate moots uh, that are going to be happening very soon, but there is something going to be happening even sooner, and that is this coming Sunday, the 22nd of September, which is, of course, Bilbo and Frodo's birthday, and we are going to celebrate Bilbo and Frodo's birthday, as I have been doing at Signum for the last six or seven years. Uh, That is going to be the the beginning of our annual fall fundraising campaign for Signum University. So we're going to have, I'm going to have, I'm going to do a broadcast on Sunday afternoon. It's going to be at 4.30 PM Eastern time. Tried to make that at a time which would work for most people. Um, I know it's not going to work for absolutely everyone. Uh, like, People in Japan, for instance, but you know it should be okay for uh, from the west coast of America out to Europe. So uh, anyway, four thirty p.m. Uh, Eastern time on Sunday, and we're going to do a broadcast. I'll broadcast it here on Twitch. We'll do a go-to webinar uh, session as well. That'll be up on the website tomorrow. The link for that. And uh, anyway, so um, I'm going to do. I'm going to first. Uh, I do a little bit of Signum updating, talking about sort of the, 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 the state of things and where things are going. I'm not going to do my full state of the university address. That's going to be a little bit later on. Um, but I'm going to do some updates and, and uh, sort of share about the beginning of the campaign and uh, tell you about some things that are going to be happening, some special events that we're going to be doing uh, over the course of the campaign, including my next Lord of the Rings online marathon, which has been a traditional part of our fall fundraising campaign for a while. Uh, I'm going to get Wigand as close as I can get him to the uh, uh, Battle of Pelennor Field. So uh, anyway, so that's going to happen too. So I'll be talking about the schedule for those things uh, this coming Sunday. So plan to join me. We're also going to do some readings. I mean, it's Hobbit Day, so I'm going to do I'm going to do a, 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 a long Tolkien reading. So not like exploring the Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to read a sentence and then talk about it. I'm going to read a long passage. Uh, and then we can have some discussion uh, uh, of the longer passage. So that's what's going to be happening uh, this coming Sunday. Maybe, maybe we'll have some more readings. We'll see. We'll see uh, what's going to be happening there. But it's going to be fun. So please do join me 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, on Sunday the 22nd uh, for our big kickoff event and then uh, uh, into uh, the following week. And then, of course, uh, New England Moot is the week after that. So, that is the plan. Um, but uh, uh, that's all the announcements. Yep, those are all my announcements. Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, <laughs> Blue Wizard is saying he's excited for the prospect uh, of a Tolkien professor Robert Plant crossover on Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I just got a on Twitter. We were we were talking about this. Someone was uh, uh, was trying to connect me and Robert because Robert Plant, uh, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, uh, is doing a podcast where he's talking about a lot of his uh, uh, his um, you know his process, right, and his songwriting uh, for for Zeppelin. Uh, I'm a, I've been a Zeppelin fan since I was seven, and so somebody was tweeting uh, this afternoon, like, "Oh yeah, we should like do a Tolkien discussion on you know Tolkien's influence on Led Zeppelin." Uh, so I was like, "Hey, pff, I'm all about this," and actually the Prancing Pony guys too were like, "Yeah, let's do a panel discussion on this." Uh, so yeah, I have no idea how we make it happen. Actually, <laughs> like, so everybody go tweet to Robert Plant at Robert Plant, um, and uh, you know. Tell them that we need to make this happen. I'm not quite sure how to make it happen, but if anybody wants to volunteer to help make that happen, I would I would love for that to happen. That would be really fun. Uh, that's been uh, uh, something actually I've been you know kind of toying with the idea of for for many years actually. Um, to uh, 
there, there, there have been two like conversations I really want to have with songwriters, uh, uh, Tolkien conversations I want to have with songwriters. One uh, is with Robert Plant, and the other uh, is with uh, um, uh, the guys from uh, Blind Guardian uh, about their Nightfall and Middle Earth album. Uh, so, um, and I'm hopeful, who knows, maybe I can have them both before I die. We'll see. Um, but anyhow, uh, so what was I going to say? No, that's all I was going to say. All the announcements. Um, so let us return to, um, uh, so, oh yeah, so my title for tonight is Not a Thing to Miss, uh, referring, of course, to Elvish singing uh, is not a thing to miss, as we're told in The Hobbit, and of course we're going to get our first exposure to Elvish singing, indirect exposure first, right? And then, of course, we'll get some direct exposure to singing, which is distinctively not Elvish singing, in fact, uh, but Hobbit singing, as we will see. Um, but first, a couple of uh, long notes and queries. First... Beach 27 very kindly uh, responded to my call last time uh, when I was, you know, having that moment when Bilbo introduced Strider, right? Uh, you know, I, I thought you at least knew enough to know Dunedon, right? Man of the West, Numenorian. Um, and I was, I was trying to remember, wait a second, how is this, how does this strike us, right? If we try to separate ourselves from all of the years we have spent immersing ourselves in Tolkien lore and try to put ourselves back into the place of basically a first-time Lord of the Rings reader, what does that, what is the weight of that sentence when Bilbo says that? How many times has Numenor come up? What do we know about Numenor by that scene? So Beach 27 was supplying me with, said there's really, there's only one. He says uh, there's very little about Numenor directly, as it happens, but it is interesting. According to my electronic copy, Numenor is only is spoken once in the text before Bilbo connects it explicitly to Aragorn, and it's spoken by Aragorn himself at the end of his verbal lore appendix on Weathertop, post the tale of Tenuvio. There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that her line shall never fail. Elrond of Rivendell is of that kin. For of Baron and Luthien was born Dior Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing the White, whom Arendil wedded, he that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven, with the Silmaril upon his brow. And of Arendil came the kings of Numenor, that is, Westerness. Okay, so, um, the, uh, the several interesting things about this, right? Um, one, if, you know, so this is the first reference to Numenor. Uh, in the text. Now, the little asterisks, the little asterisk that Beats 27 put after spoken once in the text, the word is mentioned in the, uh, the prologue, the Concerning Hobbits prologue, in the context of discussing architecture and the architectural influences on Hobbit uh, uh, structures, right? That they did get some of the things that, uh, from the Numenorians. Um, so the, the name comes up in that context. Um, but I'm not too worried about that. Uh, that doesn't seem to me like hugely substantive. Indeed, in context, that reference if, to a first-time reader, so assuming a first-time reader slogs through the whole Concerning Hobbits section prior to starting the story, um, that reference is just going to be totally puzzling, right? I mean, who are the Numenorians, and why would they be influencing Hobbit architecture? Um, I don't think any real... Um, information is going to be conveyed by that reference. So I agree with, um, I agree with um, taking, just ignoring that one. So considering Strider's reference here is the first reference to Numenor, there are two things that 
seem very interestingly relevant to the to Bilbo's reference here in the Hall of Fire that we were just looking at last week. One is the overall context, right? Amidst all of these proper nouns that come peppering at us, you know, <laughs> fast and furious in this paragraph, um, which I think would certainly probably make the head of, an, of a first-time reader spin. But um, the context of it is to talk about there, there live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, right? So the subject of the paragraph is not Luthien, right? It's coming out of the Luthien story. It's about the descendants of Luthien, right? There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that her line shall never fail. So there is a uh, an extent to which Aragorn is talking about himself here, his people, right? Um, so here we're learning about those people of the ancient kings, this special people that are set aside. Her line shall never fail, right? There's something blessed about them. There's something special about them uh, because they are the descendants of Luthien. Again, the cause and effect is a little bit unclear, but, uh, but the implication, right, is that there's some cause and effect there. Um, and he gets around then eventually at the end to the kings of Numenor that is Westerness, right? Um, so he ties it through all of this elvish history, um, uh, we get from Baron and Luthien was born Dior Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing, whom Eärendil wedded, um, and of Eärendil came the kings of Numenor. Um, which is interesting, because of course, the thing that he doesn't say is, uh, you know, he says Elrond of Rivendell is of that kin. And then he goes on to describe Elrond's descent, right? Elrond's family tree. Baron and Luthien, to Dior, to Elwing, connected to Eärendil, and then the kings of Numenor, right? So kind of, he, he kind of skips Elrond at the end, like El, given Elrond, OPS also, uh, the kings of Numenor. Um, but again, he, he, so although he mentions Elrond as the most famous example of living descendants of Luthien, um, he traces the lineage of, of Elrond, not to emphasize Elrond's lineage, but to emphasize the lineage of the kings of Numenor, or indeed that the lineage of the kings of Numenor is the same lineage as the lineage of Elrond, right? Which is also kind of interesting in the context of Aragorn introducing this, right? Which, again, when you think about it in the bigger picture of, of Aragorn's romantic situation, uh, he is saying, you know, my, uh, my family line is not only on a level, right, uh, with uh, my wife's. It's the same, actually. Uh, we're part of the same family, though separated by a number of generations. Um, which is okay. That makes it non-creepy, by the way. It's all fine. Um, anyway, so that's the first thing. Uh, but again, the other thing that I, I w would want to make sure that we emphasize here, notice that we get the reference to A. Rendell and his uh, uh, and his his voyage, right? Um, he that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow. So when Numenor is first introduced to us, it is linked to Eärendil. Eärendil gets the most press, you know, the, 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 the most press, the most uh, uh, time, right, in that whole paragraph of any of the, you know, the the, the rest of them, I mean, who is Dior's thing, Dior Thingol's heir? The fact that he is Thingol's heir is the only thing we know, and since we don't know anything about Thingol except what we've heard just now during the plot synopsis, that doesn't mean all that much to us. Who is Elwing? 
Uh, well, we don't know, except she's called the White for some reason, which is not explained, uh, and that she marries Arendel, right? So we know very little about her, but Arendel, we're told more about, right? We get this whole uh, uh, clause about him, right? He that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world and into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow, and of Arendel came the kings of Numenor. Right. Um, so Eärendil was given a very central place. So Eärendil is the the really important descendant of Luthien. Right. We don't even mention again, as I said, explicitly the fact that Elrond is his son. But um, uh, but anyway, again, just interesting to me that the very first time we get Numenor, we are given it explicitly in the context of Eärendil. Right. Eärendil, the Mariner, Silmaril, voyage into the stars. Oh, by the way, Numenor. The Numenorians came from him, right? Of Eärendil came the kings of Numenor. And when Bilbo brings Numenor back up again, so the second time that the name has explicitly been said in the text, it's right before the Eärendil was a mariner poem, right? Oh, I thought you knew Dúnedain, man of the west, Numenorian, right? And then the next thing we're going to hear Bilbo saying is Eärendil was a mariner. Um, so that is... Um, very interesting. And, and sp spiritual cushions, I agree with you. Um, uh, that Numenor, of course, was itself, in one of its names, named after Eärendil's star, Elena, right? Um, uh, the land of the star. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's uh, Eärendil's star. So uh, the link there is is real, right? The link there is real. Um, so, again, kind of interesting. Okay, but there's another one, right, where the word Numenor, like the actual name Numenor isn't mentioned, um, but that's, of course, Gandalf's words to Frodo, right? Only a ranger, my dear Frodo, that is just what the rangers are, the last remnant in the north of the great people, the men of the west. They have helped me before, and I shall need their help in the days to come, for we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. The great people, the men of the west. So he doesn't use the word Numenor here, right? But... We are, we've, we've been reminded of the phrase men of the West recently, right? Um, and Frodo has just in the previous paragraph used the phrase the, uh, the old kings, right? The people of the old kings. So these are the people, the old kings, uh, the great people, the men of the West. Um, one of the things that's really noticeable, right, about these two, so these are the only two references that I can remember, right? Um, yes, the kings from over the sea. Gandalf refers to them as the kings from over the sea. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I would say of all of those things, like this whole conversation between Frodo and Gandalf, we are unsurprisingly, because it's Frodo, right, who is the primary interlocutor here, right? He is, we're, we're talking about the Numenorians from a, 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 a lower perspective, right? From the perspective of the residents of Middle-earth who were here the whole time and saw the Numenorians return, right? The kings from over the sea, the great people, the men of the West, right? Whereas in Strider's version, we're seeing them from the First Age perspective, not from the Third Age perspective, but from the First Age perspective, right? Um, Baron and Luthien, to, to Dior, to Elwing, to Eärendil, uh, to the Numenorian kings, right? So they are the last of this very exalted family tree, right? Well, them and Elrond. Um, so anyway, so we get that, uh, that right now you're right, Sir Calidor, we get a very oblique, uh, memory of the Numenorean kings in Bombadil's vision, right? The, the line of kings that he sees and, and the, you know, the, the last one that comes with a star on his brow. 
But that's really something that we can kind of only understand in retrospect, right? That is a, a passage that I think is very, very I, I can't imagine there are very many people who fully parse, fully and accurately parse that vision their first time through the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, and good, Matt, exactly. We do know the hobbits have some kind of a memory of the Numenorians in that they talk about whether people do or do not know of the king. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, Matt, that usage back in The Hobbit. Um, that idea that, again, from the hobbit perspectives, the idea of the king is, is one, a thing of memory, right? But also of reverence, right? There is this reverent memory of, of you know, the people of the old kings. That's, that's definitely what I hear in Frodo's description, right? So we get both of these things. We get we, we we are told that the Numenorians are connected to all of that first age stuff, right? All of those that, that highest tradition. They are the descendants of Luthien, whose line shall never fail, right? Through Arendel, most importantly. And then we're told in Frodo and Gandalf's conversation that they're the people of the old kings, the great people, the people from the kings from across the sea, right? Um, so. Yeah, so that that's it's interesting that we get both of those angles, and that's it. That's all we know of the Numenorians until we get Bilbo's comment: Dunedain, Man of the West, Numenorian. Um, so, it seems in some ways that this. I'm tempted to say that there is a way in which both of those two angles kind of come together here in this moment. That is, both the one in which they are seen from the point of view of the first age, right, as sort of the last lingering descendants of the ancient world, right, the last, they are these, like, walking memories of the ancient world who still go in secret among us, right, the people of the old kings, that's just what the rangers are, um, and uh, and then from the Hobbit perspective, right? That uh, um, and this seems to me something that's really kind of captured in this moment of recognition and in this moment of you know that what has been a slightly strange kind of suspense, right? Why did we need the reveal of Strider, right? Uh, we already met him before; he's not a surprise, right? And yet. We, we've been put through this elaborate um, unveiling of, of the fact that Strider and Dunedain are the same person, right? Um, and remember, this is going to be a thing that Tolkien's going to come back to, right? Um, I am Strider and Dunedain too, he is going to say later on, right? Uh, remember, this is going to happen in, uh, in, Isen, in the ruins of Isengard. This is going to come up again. This is going to come up again in the Houses of the Healing, right, with Mary. Um, so... That, like, I am both. I am, uh, uh, I am, like, you can look at me from different angles, and I'm going to look different from different angles, right? Is going to be kind of a thing with Aragorn. He is familiar to Frodo. He is the person who is dear, if dear is the right word for it, to him as a friend, right? Um, but he is also going to be one of the people of the great kings. He's going to be this one of these sort of legendary figures, right? And he's also going to be, you know, we're going to be reminded from the first age standpoint that he's going to be one of these 
uh, last lingering remnants of the ancient world in Middle-earth, and ultimately that's going to be his job description, right? Um, so, um, yeah, and it's true, Brandon, it, you know, you recall Numenor too closely, you never can be sure what's going to happen. Uh, you might trigger the greatest storm in modern history. Um, Notion Club papers reference from our Wednesday night discussion. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt is asking, how likely is uh, is it that to- is uh, Tolkien drawing on the legend uh, of the lines of the kings of Britain coming from Troy. I th- My guess, Matt, is that this is a kind of thing that Tolkien is doing one of those reverse echoes of, right? Um, uh, that is, when you... Uh, when he d- Instead of, like, merely echoing a traditional story... He tells the story, which is like the original, that the ancient story is like only a garbled version of. And that's, I think, what's going on here, right? Um, he is posing the, new, the story of Numenor, the story of the men of the West, as the true history which lies behind many of the myths and legends that grew up later on. So the fact that um, Geoffrey of Monmouth, and you're right about that, uh, Matt, the fact that Geoffrey of Monmouth traced the... Uh, the the kings of of Britain, right, uh, back to uh, the Trojans, right, who came through Rome and then uh, and then who who le- you know and then uh, you know Brutus who left Rome and uh, landed in England. Um, that this idea, you know, I think that Tolkien would would say, or Tolkien seems to be sort of inviting us to think that these ancient legends, exactly like Geoffrey of Monmouth. Um, who are remembering this have some kind of a dim sense, right? Of like these great Kings came from across the sea, right? And they were embraced here, uh, you know, in our land, uh, and have enriched our land. But that's, that's a distant memory of Numenor, right? That's what that is. Um, but anyway, absolutely spiritual questions. We are in the midst of discussing. Actually, we're in the last, we're in the home stretch now of discussing the Notion Club papers. Uh, in the Mythgard Academy, we are currently doing Sauron Defeated. Uh, and uh, we finished the, uh, the last section of the history of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and we did the unpublished epilogue. And now we're doing the, we've been doing the Notion Club papers now for, oh, I don't know what, nine sessions maybe? It's, it's been slow. I've been going slowly, not this slowly, but I've been going slowly through the Notion Club papers. I uh, still have a couple, um, a couple uh, sessions left. So that's Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern Time is the live sessions. Uh, you can see all of our previous ones up to this point are on uh, YouTube already. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, you can uh, you can check in with that. We're again, we're we're really at the tail end now uh, uh, in our live discussions. So we'll be picking up again tomorrow. Uh, maybe two weeks left, I think. Uh, in the uh, look, you know, tying up the last unfinished stuff at the end. Um, but anyway, yeah, Notion Club papers are really mind blowing. Uh, and if you read the Notion Club papers carefully, you will learn more about how Tolkien thinks and how Tolkien wrote than I think anywhere else in any of Tolkien's writings. That's certainly the conclusion I have come to after this study of the Notion Club papers that we've been doing over the last couple months. It's It's been really mind-blowing on occasion. Um, difficult in many places, but, but mind-blowing in lots of them. But anyway, I digress. Okay, so thank you, Beach27, for 
confirming my suspicion that these were the only places that we talked about Numenor, and I, I'm not sure that I remembered clearly the reference there in Strider's epilogue uh, to the Tenuvio poem, so thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, one more, though it's another long one, but hopefully I don't think it should take quite as long. Um, uh, so uh, 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 Saxo Runesinger was saying... In episode 112, we talked about Elrond's joking comment about Bilbo's poem in progress, and we will hear it and judge it before we end our merrymaking. The conclusion from discussion, and in further discussions in session 113, was that Elrond, capable of code-switching with his friend the Little Master, was engaging in hobbitry and was not really going to judge so harshly after all. But having recently read Diana Glyer's Bandersnatch, which is a great book, which describes the, collaborative, uh, the creative collaboration between Tolkien and the Inklings, I have a notion that Tolkien's experience and expectation would be that such critique would be appropriately and understandably honest, since anything short of this would be disingenuous. Why would the folk of Rivendell have any other style of appreciation of a work in progress? Having spent 17 years with this crowd, Bilbo would know these rules, which is why he missed the feast in order to be prepared. Now, uh, I agree. First of all, I think that that's a great perspective and, and certainly a good thing to remember uh, that, you know, in the context of Inkling's discussions and things like that, uh, just sort of the creative culture, uh, uh, as you say, that Tolkien was living in, um, he wouldn't have, you know, the idea of somebody judging your poem would not have been merely terrifying or, or some kind of uh, threat, right? That would be a good thing. Um, so I agree with you. To an extent, and I certainly don't think and, and didn't mean to imply that Elrond and the other elves would be disingenuous, like if they heard Bilbo's poem and thought it was junk, that they would just be like, oh, that, um, yeah, no, really good, Bilbo. I really love that. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't expect the elves to do that at all. But here's the thing. Here's the, here's the one kind of caveat that I have, uh, uh, to this argument. The reason I think, again, I'm not saying I think that there's going to be disingenuousness here, but the reason I think that Elrond is, is, is still kind of, is, is I still hold to the fact that he's sort of joking a little bit here. As Bilbo is going to say himself, uh, is going to say to Frodo that, like, it's, his poetry is not really up to Rivendell standards, right? Um, he knows this. And I think that this is not just a purely qualitative assessment on his part, right? Um, it's not merely that, like, oh, I'm really not as good a poet as these elves, right? Um, it's not just that. He's doing a completely different kind of thing. Um, and I think it's going to be very hard for them to judge it in the same way. That is, judge in the sense of giving... Uh, you know, honest criticism of. Um, and I think we're going to see that borne out in the brief critical conversation that happens after the poem, right? Um, so, anyway, I, um, uh, I definitely, I still think that he, it, it, the idea that Elrond is saying, like, we're going to, you know, re and we're going to respond and, and, and tell you all of the flaws in your poem... I still do think that they are, let's see, the way that I would compare is, and this seems to me, honestly, actually a fairly apt comparison. If you were to say something like this to a child, right, like an eight-year-old who had composed a poem, um, you would, you could say it quite honestly, 
right? You could give them very serious and genuine. Again, I'm not saying that you would have to like, you know, any poem an eight-year-old composes, you have to be like, oh, that was fabulous. That was great. No, I think it's better to tell them like, yeah, you know, that was, that was good. But, you know, I would, you know, make suggestions and say, oh, this part I think wasn't as good as that part. Like, I don't there's no reason not to do that kind of thing, even with a child. But there's a different kind of standard that one is going to use, right? One isn't going to just put it next to, you know, the, 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 you know, you're not going to put it next to the great poems of the English language and be like, well, you know, okay, it really wasn't, uh, you know, let's, 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 let's compare it. You're not going to do that, right? You're going to respond to it on its level. Um, and I think that that's how they would respond to it on its level with appreciation, which means with a, with a real and sincere critical response. But what Elrond says about like, we shall hear it and judge it. Um, I think still the tone of that still sounds to me like it's designed to be deliberately off-putting, right? Um, you know, like we are going to form a tribunal and we are going to assess, you know, whether your poem is, your new poem is up to scratch, right? But I, I, I also do agree with your emphasis. Bilbo clearly takes it seriously. He knows that his poem is, like, it's a big deal for his poem to be performed uh, in the Hall of Fire, right, in front of everybody. And he's going to know, of course, it's a doubly big deal for his poem about Arendel to be recited in front of Elrond himself when Elrond has just told him that he's going to judge it. So um, I, I'm not at all suggesting that he doesn't take that seriously either. So there's definitely um, some real and constructive intensity there. I, I, that I can absolutely see, but I still think that there's that air of teasing, uh, in Elrond's comment, right? He is deliberately making it sound like they are going to form a hostile tribunal, uh, uh, to assess his work, which is, I think, not exactly the way that things are gonna, uh, uh, uh go down. Um, now, Mornowin, I agree that this isn't the first poem that Bilbo has crafted there, and they know his style. But this is not just a style question. It's not just a style question. Um, well, let me save that. Actually, no. Let me move on to the second half of Saxo Runesinger's, whose name I forgot to put on the slide, um, Saxo Runesinger's comment. Also in class 113, he says, there was some discussion of the elves' probable delight in the hobbits' linguistic translation of their tales and poems. No doubt this was new to them. To the extent that they had encountered the art of mortals, it would have been most likely that of the men of the West, who would have largely adopted elvish styles and forms, and probably would have read and recited them in Sindarin. Of course, for some of these, even a Sindarin version would have been a translation from Quenya, and the elves probably hadn't seen much of their material in Westron at all, certainly not in the Westron of the Shire, a very colloquial and informal dialect as will be confirmed, of course, later on uh, in the story. But then the fact that it was a Hobbit's translation would have offered yet another layer of interest. Hobbit poetry has its own meter, but also there is a trend to adapt, modify, and recontextualize a given work to suit a particular situation, e.g. how the road goes ever on is transformed uh, uh, in the story at different readings. Uh, this approach would have also been new and interesting to the folk of Rivendell. Yes, Again, we're going to get some direct evidence after Bilbo's poetry that there is something to the elves. Bilbo's poetry is not just, it's not just that it's like Bush League poetry, right? This is not just like, you know, 
bad poetry or kind of embarrassing. It's just alien poetry, very different from how the elves think and express themselves. Um, it is my suspicion that the tale of Tenuvio, right, based on what Aragorn says about it after he recites it, about the mode that it's written in and stuff, is that the, the actual words that he says, the Westron translation of the poem that he, re- that he sings or recites for the hobbits in Weathertop is probably his own adaptation, right, his own translation of the poem. So he has adapted it into Westron. Has he ever done that? For anybody at Riven, has, ever, has, has he ever sung the Westron version of the tale of Tenuviel in the Hall of Fire? I'm not sure he would have done, right? Um, maybe. But um, yeah, JJ, that's a pretty good metaphor, I think, that it's like trying to judge a Japanese haiku based on English poetry standards. Yes. I mean, I remember the first time I ever heard a haiku, and I, I didn't get it at all. I'm like, how is that a poem? Like, I don't understand. That just sounds like a sort of a slightly you know, gnomic saying, but I, I, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how it's poetry, right? Because again, like just to me, it didn't sound like poetry at all because it's, it's, it operates under totally, a totally different set of poetic rules. Um, so that I think is perhaps similar. Um, we are going to have, I think, some evidence of this later in the work. This is a theory I came up with during the, when I was doing my Tolkien's poetry class at Signum, um, which I first taught a few years back. And my theory is that there is going to be one poem in The Lord of the Rings where we are going to see, where we're really going to be able to taste clearly the alienness of Elvish poetry compared to Westron poetry. There are times when Elvish song is going to be adapted into Westron, right, by Aragorn, um, but, uh, in the translation that is going to be given by Frodo of Galadriel's song, right, which is, which she speaks in Quenya. Um, there's 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 uh, going to be uh, things like that, right? But but those are Westron versions. That's not a direct, it doesn't, it, 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 it conceals the, uh, the, the alienness of the Elvish verse because it, uh, it's, it's filtered through a Hobbit filter, right? Those, those, ultimately what we're going to be seeing when we see, um, uh, a lot of these versions of Elvish poetry is going to be Elvish, is going to be Hobbit versions. Remember we got this in, uh, the, the, um, the Elbereth poem from in the, in, in the Shire. Right. Um, and you know, from, from Gildor, I mean, right. When they show up and, and chase the, the writer away, remember that translates itself in their heads. The verse that we see on the page, the verse that we read, that's Hobbit poetry. We talked about this a little bit at the time. So that's, that's not actually how Elvish poetry works. That's how Hobbit poetry works. It's very familiar to us. Right. It sounds familiar. It sounds normal. Um, but, uh, but Elvish poetry isn't really exactly like that. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, so yes. So I, I do, I think that Saxo Winsinger is exactly right here. Um, I think that their curiosity about Bilbo is going to make it hard. I mean, just like, again, I, you know, I, I know a little bit more about haikus now than I did when I first heard them, uh, when I was in school, but, 
you know, I, I still don't know much about it, and I don't know anything like enough Japanese uh, in order to really get a feel for how that is supposed to work poetically, and how, you know how how that uh, the, the yeah, like so certainly could I judge? Am I really in a good position to judge like what makes a good haiku and a bad haiku? I don't feel that I am. I don't feel that I could really explain the You know, if you gave me a good haiku and a bad haiku and said, yeah, okay, that that one's good and that one's bad. I'm not sure I, I, I would be able to, to see it or, or express it, especially since, again, I kind of think I would need to know a lot more Japanese before I can understand that, right? Um, and again, I think that we're going to see a similar gap, um, really, actually, a similar but more profound gap. That is just between two different language groups, uh, you know, among two different mortal, you know, mortal, uh, mortal peoples right here, um, uh, separated merely by an ocean. Um, uh, the gap between elves and hobbits is much more profound. So I do think that uh, uh, Saxo is really onto something here, and this is again why I think um, there is a little bit of joking fiction behind the idea of we shall hear it and judge it, right? Um, because the only judge that we're going to hear from, the only Elvish judge we're going to hear from after Bilbo's poem is exactly going to say, I can't judge this, right? He's not going to offer any constructive criticisms at all of Bilbo's work. And not just because he doesn't care and not just because he's apathetic, but because he's like, yeah, dude, not qualified, right? I, I can't, I, I, I don't like, it's over my head. I mean, he responds to it again, kind of, artistically the way that I respond to, uh, to, to haiku. So yeah, thank you. That's a really good uh, metaphor. I like that or simile technically. Okay, cool. Anyway, we'll come back to this. This is a little teaser for the poem, which we're almost there. And I think that we'll be able to see pretty quickly. Um, um, <laughs> Vinamoinen's comment was haikus are easy, but sometimes they don't make sense refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I assume Vinamoinen you're putting, or Valamoinen, I, I, sorry, you're putting that forward as an example of an excellent haiku so that I can learn about what makes a good haiku good. Right. Um, uh, cause that's, that works for me. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> so, um, uh, we will, one of the things that we will be looking at right away is uh, um, is the um, the Hobbitness of, El of Bilbo's poem, right? I will see that I think in the first stanza of it. Um, but um, yeah, good. Um, Brandon uh, uh, points out that you know elves don't usually tell you what they think as well, right? Which is true. Which is another thing which leads me to question whether or not the Hall of Fire at Rivendell really is the same kind of um, the, the same kind of constructive, critical, you know, sort of creative, uh, 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 community, right. That Tolkien was a part of, um, how Inklings like would the Hall of Fire be? I, I really am not sure at all that it would be, um, uh, that it would be very, uh, uh, Inklings like actually. Um, and again, if you want to know a little bit about what a, an Inklings meeting probably was like, 
Read the Notion Club papers, right? That's uh, Tolkien's fictionalized version of uh, of an Inklings meeting. You know, his like pseudo uh, pseudo Inklings. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, sessions, right? Uh, and again, I, I cannot imagine the elves of Rivendell talking like that to each other. I really, I really can't. Um, but um, anyway, okay. The text. So here we go. Well, my dear fellow, said Bilbo, now you've heard the news. Can't you spare me a moment? So that's, this is Destrider. Right. Uh, who said that he was sorry he couldn't be there at the feast because there was that news that he had here. And we talked about how uh, how bad Strider is it at Hobbitry. Right. He doesn't get the banter thing. Well, my dear fellow, said Bilbo, now you've heard the news. Can't you spare me a moment? I want your help in something urgent. Elrond says this song of mine is to be finished before the end of the evening and I am stuck. Let's go off into a corner and polish it up. Strider smiled. Come then, he said. Let me hear it. Frodo was left to himself for a while, for Sam had fallen asleep. He was left alone and felt rather forlorn, although all about him the folk of Rivendell were gathered. But those near him were silent, intent upon the music of the voices and the instruments, and they gave no heed to anything else. Frodo began to listen. Okay. Um, so, I, I think that uh, Bilbo's Well, My Dear Fellow... Um, notice how Bilbo is kind of unrelentingly, um, unrelentingly, like, jovial, or like, his, his, his hobbitry towards Strider does not relent, despite the fact that Strider is not returning it, right? He is not reciprocating the tone at all, uh, of Bilbo's, you know, including Bilbo's, as we discussed last time, rather cheeky reference to the Lady Arwen, right, previously. Um, and uh, so, you know, and, and, and Strider's very deadpan response, well, my dear fellow, now that you've heard the news, can't you spare me a moment, right? Um, I am, here's me resolutely not taking what you've said seriously. Bilbo could respond um, with... Um, with something that says, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, I understand, Strider. Like, you know, you had, I know you had serious business. But, you know, if you if if you have time, you know, could, no, you know, he's like, he basically dismisses uh, him. Now that you've heard the news, right, okay, so you've gotten your super important work over, right? Uh, now can't you spare me a minute? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I think that that's... Um, Interesting. And an interesting kind of reflection. We know that, I mean, he has been, um, uh, Strider has been introduced here as Bilbo's friend, right? Bilbo's special friend, Dunedon, whoever that is, right? So we know that the two of them are friends, even though we do not see Strider interacting with Bilbo in this, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, jocund and uh, light-hearted way, Bilbo uh, continues to talk to him like a friend, right? Like he would talk to one of his friends. Um, and I love the combination of of both flippancy about Strider's business and self-deprecation towards himself, right? Um, I want your help in something urgent, right? Now that you've heard the news, I've got something really important, 
right? Um, and then he he lays it out like this. It's this portentous thing. Elrond says this song of mine is to be finished before the end of the evening, and I'm stuck. Um, now, of course, we're going to learn that this is not exactly true, right? Um, that uh, Bilbo has, in fact, it, the poem is pretty much done, uh, and Aragorn is going to contribute very little towards the poem at all. Um, but he makes it sound like, you know, again, this is a huge, huge deal, right? Um, let's go off into a corner and polish it up. Um, yeah. And, uh, Brandon points out that, uh, uh, he loves that Aragorn seems to consider Bilbo's request for poetry help as important, uh, as something urgent. You know, he doesn't contradict Bilbo. Um, even though, of course, you know, so he does not say, like, yeah, well, look, no, no, seriously, like, what I was doing, it was actually urgent. Um, again, Strider, he doesn't do the hobbitry thing very well, but he gets it, right? And he smiles, right? He, he, he enjoys it. He enjoys Bilbo. He, he understands Bilbo. Um, like, he acknowledges the joke by smiling and, and by, uh, uh, you know, not, Brandon, as you say, not, you know, contradicting him or, or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Matt, you're right. Uh, Matt is thinking about the earlier, uh, parallel to when, uh, you know, Gandalf does his, you know, buzzkill Lord of the Rings speech, right? Um, uh, and Pippin rolls his eyes and brushes it off, right? Um, Gandalf has been saying many cheerful things like that, right? Um, so, uh, uh, yes, there is, there is a kind of kingly forbearance, I think, uh, looking at your name there, Davis, um, um, on Twitter. Yeah, there is a kind of kingly forbearance to his tone here, I think. But again, this is not, I think, a, he's not holding himself aloof, I think. Um, you know, this just seems to me that he is reciprocating in his own idiom right he does he doesn't do bilbo's idiom but he does he does you know meet his uh uh his 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 friendship yes exactly his lack of hobbitry is not due to a lack of appreciation for it he's not deaf to it um nor is he hostile to it nor does he have no sense of humor this is just it's not it's not his mode he doesn't do it um uh yeah yeah no i agree i agree um Oh, as, as far as what the news was, it is possible, of course, that Eladon and Elro here had still been out searching for Frodo. I mean, you know, there was nobody to text them to say that the ring bearer's in, you know, it's okay to come back now. Um, so they probably were still searching for Frodo, but of course, what they would presumably be coming home right now, what the news that Aragorn was probably most eager to hear is where are the ringwraiths, right? What happened to them to, you know, they... Okay, they got washed downstream in the flood, so what next, right? Where are they is almost certainly, I would think, what uh, Aragorn is most interested to hear. And we don't know exactly when they went out, right? So they may have been back since Frodo arrived and, you know, gone out again. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm uh, very strongly suspecting that it was... Um, it was uh, news of the Black Riders that they were going out for. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Katriana says, uh, this is like how many people often want to have a friend read their paper or listen to their presentation as a practice run or whatever, and probably Bilbo's used Aragorn as a testier before, so Aragorn knows he just has to go and go listen and be encouraging? Probably. Probably, yeah. I mean, Katriana, think back to the discussion we were just having about poetry, right? Um, Strider is going to be one of the few other people in Rivendell who's going to get Bilbo's, for whom Bilbo's poetry is not going to be alien, right? Um, he is now, again, I agree with Saxo Runesinger that the Numenorians, although, you know, the, uh, the, the elves' interactions with the Numenorians would have had them be acquainted to some extent with mortals, right? And the differences between mortals and elves. The gap between elves and Numenorians is nothing like the gap between elves and hobbits, right? Um, which means... You know, the logical extension of that observation is that Numenorians, a.k.a. Strider, right, are actually there as a kind of a middle ground between the elves and the hobbits. Um, so Strider is therefore the perfect test audience for Bilbo, right? Because he's not, I mean, if, if, if there were another elf that Bilbo was particularly close with, he could take him aside and, 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 and sing it for him and be like, what do you think? And the elf would be like, I think what I always think. I don't get it, right? Whereas Aragorn um, is able both to receive it a little bit more easily, but also he's a little closer to the rest of the audience, right? So he is used to being kind of in between, uh, I think, a little bit more, as his own earlier poem shows, right? He also, like Bilbo, do we have any other examples? I don't think we have any other examples, right? I mean, so far as I know, the people who are translating Elvish song and lore into Westron poetry is a two-person club so far, right? Well, Sam, arguably, right? But he, the only thing from Elvish lore specifically uh, was, the, was the Gilgalad poem, which we know he was, was Bilbo's and not Sam's. But... Um, uh, Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but Belongsmond, you're right. Despite the fact that Aragorn is also a, an elvish translator like Bilbo, he does not, apparently, like Bilbo, have the cheek to, to recite it in the Hall of Fire in front of Elrond, especially the poems that are about Elrond's dad. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, Ambrosius Aurelianus, or Ambrosius Aurelianus is speculating that Aragorn has probably had a lot of practice in not accidentally offending Elrond while when trying to rhapsodize on Elvish matters. Probably so. Probably again, he would be the perfect um, uh, test argument. And I do presume that Aragorn had lots of training in writing poetry. And again, unlike a lot of the elves, he you know I I I, I wonder. How many of the elves are, you know, render these elvish modes of poems into uh, uh, into into Westron into the common speech? Is that a is that a is that a hobby among the elves? Maybe maybe there are elves who do that, um, but definitely not. Uh, it's definitely not all of them, right? And by the way, you know, whenever we're talking about elvish poetry, somebody's always going to make a. Uh, um, Someone's always gonna gonna make a tralala lolly joke, right? I think that that really just kind of proves my point, right? Um, 
the Tralalalali songs. I mean, it's one of the arguments that I was making in my Hobbit book that I think that that we see like the Elvish poems are weird. They're not weird in poetic form exactly. I mean, they scan normally and stuff like that, um, but they uh, they're weird, right? I mean, they sound strange. They sound silly and ridiculous and just odd. Um, and again, I think that it's supposed to, that Tolkien really is trying to capture a different way of looking at the world uh, in those poems, even when he's doing, you know, in the context of sort of the, in the sort of uh, slightly sillier context of, uh, uh, of, of The Hobbit. Um, yeah, well, uh, Ambrosius, I also wonder what Aragorn's training really involved. Um, yeah, uh, it would be fascinating to think of a, uh, you know, the educational curriculum for Aragorn, young Aragorn. I mean, he was quite young when he, I mean, he was like two when he came to Rivendell. So he would not have been taught anything by his father or in, uh, uh, you know, sort of among his father's people. But his mom was there, right? Gil Ryan would have taught him. Um, and I would th- have thought that Gil Ryan would have taken the primary role in teaching him. But of course... Almost certainly, uh, Elrond would also have been involved, right? Uh, so exactly where were the where were the lines there? This, of course, was something that we played with in the frame of uh, season one of the of of the film film project, imagining the uh, the and some of the potential tensions that might have arisen, right? We were sort of imagining uh, maybe Gilrine and Elrond might not have seen eye to eye on this at all times. Um, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, good. Um, okay. Frodo being alone. So Sam has fallen asleep. Now, as Tom points out, is Sam really asleep? You can't really tell. <clears throat> On the one hand, he's fallen asleep, he's fallen asleep just like he did at, at, uh, uh, at Woodhall, right? So I, uh, I too have my doubts as to whether or not uh, Sam is actually asleep. At the same time, I can believe that Sam has fallen asleep, in truth. Um, we're going to see in the next slide what's going to happen to Frodo when he begins listening to the song, right? It is my theory. So, Ambrosius, yes, that's one thing. One thing is, we, Sam's not been sleeping all that much, right? He's been sitting by Frodo's bedside as much as they will allow him to do. They send him away to get some sleep sometimes, but I doubt that. I, I, I feel pretty confident that on this, the first day that Frodo is up and about, Sam is still dealing with a, a fair backlog of sleep deprivation. Okay? That seems to me very likely. So the idea that Sam would, after the feast, uh, here in the Great Hall, by the fire, lie down and, and drop off pretty quickly... I know I would in those circumstances. I could be asleep in less than 30 seconds in, 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 in that circumstance. Um, so that's, you know, fine. Um, but when we see what's going to happen to Frodo, one of the things that I wonder is, is Sam's falling asleep here a, a sign or an indicator of the fact that he, he started listening to the Elvish singing before Frodo did, which wouldn't surprise me at all. And yes, Tom, I agree that being asleep during an Elvish performance is a permeable state. Um, yes, I do suspect 
that it is rather like, sorry, not to do too many crossovers here, but, um, uh, just like in the Notion Club papers. Uh, my favorite character in the Notion Club papers is Dull Bear, uh, who is always listening to the pseudo-inklings meetings, uh, the Notion Club meetings, while asleep, right? So he, uh, he, he'll, he'll be sitting there dozing off the entire meeting, and then he'll perk up and show that he's been understanding everything that everybody said, despite the fact that he was asleep. And this, in the context of the discussion that they're having in the Notion Club papers, is actually super relevant and totally plausible. Um, And yeah, so I think that uh, the experience that Sam is having, Sam is, I think, not just dropped off in his snoring. I think that Sam is kind of in another place (laughs) right now, right? Asleep, in a sense, not asleep, in another sense, perhaps. Um, genuinely tired, I'm sure. But, um, uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, Endang's asking, do I think Bilbo was concerned with Frodo? Maybe asking Elrond what is wrong, like a patient's head of the family asking a doctor at the ER. Um, I don't, you mean now, like when he sneaks off, you know, does he pop over to Elrond and be like, dude, did you see that? Like, should I be worried? Um, I, I wouldn't think so here. Uh, first, because I believe with Saxo Runesinger, I believe that Bilbo is taking his poetic performance quite seriously and really does want to run it past uh, uh, Aragorn. But at the same time, I think um, the primary reason that I don't think that he's sneaking off and talking to Elrond is the fact that I think he gets it. He doesn't need Elrond's explanation, right? Um, he uh, he understands. I think because I, I, I'm a big believer in the moment of insight that Bilbo just had. I think that that insight was uh, was pretty was pretty profound there. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So I think he gets it. He gets it. He doesn't need another explanation from the ER doctor. Um, yeah. Okay. He was alone and felt rather forlorn, although all about him the folk of Rivendell were gathered. That's a really interesting kind of statement to make. Um, why should Frodo feel forlorn? Even rather forlorn. I mean, Merry and Pippin are presumably around somewhere. They've got to be in the room, right? Gandalf's in the room. Glowin's in the room, right? Even if Bilbo and Strider go off to talk about his poem, leaving Frodo by himself with a now, at least apparently, somnolent Sam, um, (laughs) there's just no shortage of potential conversational partners, right? Why exactly should he feel rather forlorn here? Um, Although all about him the folk of Rivendell were gathered. Yeah, Catriona, I can't help but think that too, right? Um, it's just a couple paragraphs before we saw Frodo isolated within the room, right? All around him is the song of merriment and music uh, and, uh, you know, talk and everything. And all of a sudden he's in this bubble of silence, right? Everything drops. So it's like the rest of the room doesn't exist anymore. That's when the shadow comes between him and Bilbo and he is completely engulfed ultimately in his own desire for the ring, right? Uh, having that little moment with the ring. 
I, I don't know that I would go quite so far as to say that he is having a relapse here, like that, that his forlorn feeling is evidence that the ring is afflicting him again here. I think it's saying it a little too strongly. But to say that this is an echo or a kind of uh, uh, a kind of holdover, right, as, uh, as Lady Shmebiwak and Flamifer are both suggesting here, that he's still kind of recovering from it. Um, yeah, that this is kind of an odal ring hangover there. Yeah, that makes to, to me much more sense, that there is something... Remember not to... I mean, he's had the conversation with Bilbo about news from the Shire, right? So Bilbo has done his best to kind of reintegrate Frodo, right? And it worked. We saw, you know, he could hear the music again, and he's back into sort of sensory contact with the room around him, which is a great sign. But... Um, uh, is this still kind of a lingering holdover of that experience? Um, again, it's I can't understand it. Because it's not even like he's in a room full of strangers. It's totally not full of strangers. Um, at the very least, Mary Pippin and Gandalf are all in the room. Um, so uh, that that does strike me as a little bit odd. And that does seem to me, the, again, the holdover idea seems to me the best way to think about that. Um, Especially because in the subordinate clause in the second half of the sentence, the narrator emphasizes that, although all about him, the folk of Rivendell were gathered, right? Uh, so he's feeling forlorn in the midst of a crowd, which suggests it's, it's him. It's not them, right? People aren't being friendly. People aren't being off-putting to Frodo. People aren't uh, giving him the cold shoulder. Um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is him. It's not, it's not them. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, Ambrosius, if he's also perhaps feeling a little left out of Bilbo's confidence since he wasn't invited to help with the poem. Maybe, maybe, um, that he could be kind of grudging that in a sense, or that he wasn't included, right, uh, and that Bilbo left him behind. Um, maybe. I don't know. I don't think that he necessarily grudges it, um, but... Um, yeah, Bruner was wondering a similar thing. Is it, you know, because he's like, what, dude, I like, haven't seen Bilbo in 17 years, and now after like half an hour, he's, you know, running off and being like, hang on, you know, I got this thing. Um, yeah, exactly. He's, he's jilted me for, for, for his new friend, Belongsmond. Exactly. Um, I, there might be an element of that there. Um, or again, that itself might be another way of saying exactly the same thing, right? Um, saying that, uh, like that he is feeling that way about Bilbo, in, like that that itself is part of this emotional uh, aftertaste, as you say, Toromarthen, or, or sort of holdover uh, from that isolating, shadowy ring experience, right? Um, that kind of suspiciousness, resentment, um, is like a shadow of the shadow that comes between him and Bilbo, right? Is there, is there, is, is that shadow's shadow now coming between him and Bilbo again, in a sense? Um, um, yeah, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's, that seems very, very possible. Um, but those near him were silent, intent upon the music of the voices and the instruments, and they gave no heed to anything else. Frodo began to listen. Um, so let's look at what happens when he listens. 
At first, the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell, as soon as he began to attend to them. Almost it seemed that the words took shape, and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him, and the firelit hall became like a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike, until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air about him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. There he wandered long in a dream of music that turned into running water, and then suddenly into a voice. It seemed to be the voice of Bilbo chanting verses. Faint at first, and then clearer, ran the words. Okay. Um. <laughs> Lady Shmevioc says, It reminds me of the siren singing, only less death. Uh, yes, yes, distinctly, distinctly less death. Um, uh, yes, so this is... Um, <laughs> Boaxmon says, I'll have what he's having. Yeah, uh, the... The depiction of this is one of the uh, most remarkable um, depictions of enchantment in Tolkien. Um, we get our first glimpse of this kind of thing in Bilbo, right? In chapter one of The Hobbit, when he's listening to the dwarf song and has that dwarvish experience, right? As a result, um, this is described a little bit more clearly. So his first response, let's, let's kind of try to piece it out um, item by item here. At first the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell as soon as he began to attend to them. So he is first just kind of mesmerized by the two beauties, right? The beauties of the melodies... So we've got the actual music itself, um, and we have uh, the interwoven words in elven tongues. And notice this has nothing to do with the beauty of the song in any kind of uh, denotation sense. He doesn't understand it, right? He does not understand the words. Um, he understands them little, but they hold him in a spell. He is enchanted uh, by the beauty of the interwoven words as soon as he attends to them. Um, almost it seems that the words took shape. So first is just, again, that being mesmerized by the beauty of it, uh, what he's, he's hearing, him being held in a spell. Kind of like me with rap music. But anyway, almost it seemed that the words took shape and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him. And the firelit... So, now we have the enchantment really setting in. Not just his experience of the... So first he's having an aesthetic experience, right? He's, having, he's experiencing the beauty of the combination of song and, uh, and, and words, right? Um, then he moves from, from an aesthetic experience to a sub-created experience, right? And remember Tolkien's concept of fairy and drama, um, that is the, the logical extension of 
the artistic of, of artistic subcreation, right? When you're reading a good story, you get drawn into it, right? And in your imagination, it's like you're there and you can lose sight of all the world around you and get drawn into the story and hours can go by that you don't notice, right? All of these things that happen to us when we're, when we're, uh, uh, when we're reading or listening to a really good book. Um, with a logical extension, Tolkien argues, and on fairy stories of that experience, is what he calls fairy and drama. Humans can't really accomplish this, but elves can. When they actually, you, the art is so good that you mistake it for the primary world. Um, so you yourself, just in your waking world, it's like you're in a dream except you're awake. Right, you are in fact transported. All of your senses are transported. That what is what be what what is like you're taking in artistically becomes sensory input. Right, and we see that transition happen. Um, the words take shape, and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him. Right, so that 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 opening. Right is him being ushered into this, and notice this is not just him being. This is one thing that this experience has in common with Bilbo's in Chapter One of The Hobbit. Right in both cases, and I think that this is a really important element of this. It's not like a memory that is being evoked for him. Right, he is not being. This is not tying into. He's not relating to this. Uh, to use the really, really tired way of talking about art that we do almost exclusively in the 21st century. Can I relate to it? Um, I shouldn't roll my eyes too heavily when I say that. I'm not saying that that's unimportant at all, but the way that we in the 21st century tend to treat that as if that's the only evaluative question that's appropriate to ask. Like If the answer is no, I can't relate to it, then it's bad. Like It's not worth reading. Um, and that is so, so sad for exactly this reason. When one is enchanted, the beauty of enchantment, the miracle of enchantment, the opportunity that that provides is for you to be transported not into your own memories, not into your own experience, but into something completely different, where you begin to experience the world in a completely new way through the artistic lens of someone who is fundamentally different from you. Bilbo hears the song of the dwarves and he begins, he suddenly, briefly, looks at the world from a dwarvish perspective and feels the dwarvish desire in his own heart, which is very alien to his normal thinking, right? That doesn't come from him. That is something that he has received through the artistic uh, action, Right of the dwarves' song, um, uh, yeah, Belongsman. He loses himself, as it were. Yeah, <laughs> well played. Uh, but anyway, yes. Um, the, and but this is done even more extraordinarily here, right? Bilbo just gets a little taste of it uh, in chapter one. Frodo has the much fuller fairy and drama experience here. Visions of far lands. So he sees lands that he's never seen. And bright things that he had never yet imagined open out before him, right? He, things that were outside of his imagination. Now, keep in mind, this is also something like the classic definition of fantasy. The difference between fantasy and imagination, according to like medieval nomenclature, right? Uh, the way that those two words were used in, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, Shakespeare still uses these words in this way. Uh, so when Shakespeare talks about imagination, he is not talking about creativity at all. When Shakespeare uses the word imagination, 
uh, or imagine, he is referring to the psychological faculty for conjuring up mental images of things, right? Um, you know, so like right now, I can picture, uh, you know, what is going on. I can hear noises from upstairs as uh, my oldest son is getting ready for bed, and I can picture what is probably happening up there. Right. I can picture, you know, him getting ready for bed and plugging in his phone, which is probably happening right now. Right. I can conjure that image in my head, even though it's absent to my eyes. Right. Um, fantasy is when your imagination constructs images that you have never seen with your senses. Right. Um, uh, especially things that nobody has ever seen with their senses. Right. So when you imagine fantastical things that are fantastical when that word is used a fantastical thing again when shakespeare uses the word fantastical um uh like uh when uh who is it lucio who refers to the duke uh in uh uh in measure for measure as the as the old fantastical duke of dark corners what he means when he says fantastical is from the fantasy like somebody who conjures up um, uh, crazy things that nobody has ever seen before. That's like the experience that Frodo's having, except it's not him. It doesn't come from him. It comes from, he, this is him experiencing the fantasy of someone else, right? Or at least it feels like fantasy to him because it's not out of his imagination. These are not images out of his experience, right? Or out of his memory. Uh, this is something that which is art to them, that which is possibly memory to them, um, is for him this sort of ultimate fantastic experience, right? Um, yeah. Um, Arden Crayon, yeah, boy, that would be a great paper, wouldn't it? That would be an excellent moot paper, Arden Crayon. Um, compare the Hobbit's enchantment at Woodhall with the, their enchantment at Bombadil's house with Frodo's enchantment here. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. That would be a great paper. What do we learn about enchantment? What are some of the different things that we can see in the similarities and differences between that kind of, uh, experience that they have in those places? I think that's great. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Matt says, uh, uh, Tolkien might be echoing Keats on first looking into Chapman's Homer in this passage. Uh, yeah, remind me, of the, I'm not remembering the lines that he's saying, I believe you, but I'm not remembering uh, my Keats well enough uh, to, uh, uh, to recall the lines that you're thinking of. Um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, golden mist. All right, okay. And the firelit hall became like a golden mist above the seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. The firelit hall became like a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Um, again, notice the progression, right? The aesthetic experience, the perception of beauty, right? And then it seemed that worlds, that the words took shape. Visions open out before him. And then the firelit hall became, right? Now we have, like, the world around him is, is, is now completely transformed. You know, we had the vision opening up, but now the vision has engulfed his senses. He is no longer aware of the firelit hall around him. Now, in place of the firelit hall, um, you have a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. That's what the elves are singing about. That's what the elves are thinking about. 
They're thinking about Elvenholm. They're thinking about Valinor. Uh, they're thinking about the sea that lies between them. They're thinking about the margins, right? The edge of the world. Um, yeah, I agree, Karita. The margins of the world is a, is a very lovely phrase. Uh, in fact, um, I think that's one of the, I mean, Tolkien does this quite a lot, really. Um, uh, there's, there, there are many times when Tolkien will produce a phrase which is like a myth, right? Like it's, it's an, an entire myth contained in one phrase. I agree with you. That's one of those mythic uh, phrases, I think, the margins of the world. That phrase is, is like a story. It's like a poem all in itself, isn't it? Um, yeah. Oh, cool, Matt. Yeah, great. I saw it briefly and then it, and then it, and then it passed by me. Um, ah, much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen round many Western island, islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his domain, yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked upon each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien." Yeah, no, I agree. There's definitely some interesting parallels there. You've got the enchantment thing, right? His description, Keats's description of being in, of of being enchanted when he reads Homer, but also of him imagining Homer in this kind of transport as well. Um, uh, yeah, and then of course the specific details of the vision, the the realms of gold, um, and the round many western islands I have been. Um, the wide expanse and the deep brow. Yeah, yeah. No, I think there are definitely some interesting echoes here. Um, of course, that is a super modern poem, right? I mean, that's uh, pretty newfangled. But again, you have to be a little bit... I mean, you always have to take... Uh, I, I want to be cautious saying this because, of course, one can go too far in this direction. But one does always have to take Tolkien's proclamations with a, uh, with a grain of salt sometimes. He was fond of making sweeping statements, which weren't always necessarily totally accurate, right? Like, he will, people will quote places where he says that, like, you know, he disliked all French things and will take that sometimes a little bit too seriously, right? He, no, actually, he uh, uh, borrows a lot of French things, in fact, uh, and in fact shows... Uh, a great deal of inclination towards many French things, despite his protestations, right? And similarly, you know, when you hear Tolkien write off anything written before 1500, you know, or anything written after 1500, rather, um, uh, again, like that, yes, that's true, but does that mean he didn't read Keats? Yeah, no, he had read Keats. Um, you can't exactly grow up and attend a school, um, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like, like Tolkien did King Edward school, uh, without reading, you know, uh, poetry. Um, anyway. Yeah. So, so I, we have to be a little bit careful. So yeah. D did he know that? I suspect, uh, I, I suspect so. Uh, I mean, I suspect that he knew the poem certainly. Um, was he deliberately making parallels? I don't know. Uh, I mean, could it, it could be a kind of, Coincidence, right? Yeah, 
Toronto Marathon, the allegory thing is a classic example, and, and a classic example especially of people taking him too seriously. I mean, there's so many Tolkien uh, fans who very understandably, you know, very sort of faithfully are like defending Tolkien's kind of uh, hyperbolic statement, right, about his dislike of allegory. Um, uh, when, of course, he does, in fact, make allegories uh, quite self-consciously and openly and talks about it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's always possible to go too far. Um, but anyway, okay. Let's, uh, let's keep going here. So we've got uh, the margins of the world, Karita. That's as far as we got. Um, then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air about him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. So, here's my thoughts about this. Again, when we think about the progression... Here's how it goes, right? Aesthetic experience. That's very beautiful. The music, the interlocking words. Wow. Great. Then the enchantment, right? Oh, I, I, these visions are opening out before my eyes. It's like I can, I, can, I can practically see it, right? And then, no, wait. I can actually see it, right? The room has vanished, and I'm looking at it. And then something more happens. Right? But when he passes above that level, and, and I, I, I'm tempted to say above, because Frodo does seem to be kind of climbing an aesthetic ladder here, right? Um, not an aesthetic ladder, an aesthetic ladder here. Um, he is, after the full fairy and drama experience, right, when he is seeing the stuff around him as with his sensory perception in the primary world, then he's having this other experience which is more like a dream because he doesn't get it at all, right? Um, an endless river of swelling gold and silver flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended, right? Um, Frodo's consciousness has just gone tilt, you know, like a, like a, uh, like a pinball machine, right? He, 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 does, he, he, he doesn't get this, right? This is washing over him, but it is taking him to a place that he cannot, he cannot parse with his conscious mind at all, right? Um, something is happening to him, but he doesn't anymore know what it is. Now he just has vague, sort of weird, um, confused sensory perceptions that he can kind of link it to. Kind of like being drowned in a river of bright silver and gold, right? Um sort of like that. Uh, and then more, like, it became part of the throbbing air about him. It drenched and drowned him. So he's like, he is soaked in this experience, and then he's drowning in this experience. He can't, he can't handle it, right? He has, uh, it's like Frodo does not have the apparatus to receive what is now being transmitted into his directions, right? This is what I mean when I'm talking about the alienness of Elvish poetry, right? I mean, the aesthetic experience that he's having, the artistic experience that he is having, is literally exceeding his ability to comprehend it, right? Um, 
he is still aware of the fact that he um, he's still aware of the fact that he is having an artistic experience, right? Um, uh, that he's comparing metaphor, you know, that, he, you know, he's, he, there's, there's this metaphor still of the river, right? But now that metaphor of the river, which was first an attempt to describe the experience, it now is made sort of more literal, right? The air is throbbing around him and he's drenched and then drowning all of that water imagery there, right? Um, and then he sinks, under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. Um, so having been completely overloaded, you know, he's just blown the, the fuse, right. Uh, in his, uh, in his brain, right. Frodo's fuse is blown and he's going into sleep. So by the way, this is why I think Sam's already asleep. He's already been here. That is to say to this place where Frodo was. Um, I think that they were not done talking about Shire news, before Sam began to pay attention to the music around him, and he's already he's already gone before Frodo down this road here. Um, uh, this is. I'm trying to think of other places where Tolkien describes this kind of thing outside the Notion Club papers. Sorry to keep bringing that up. It's on my mind because I've been doing that for the last couple of weeks on Wednesday nights, or last couple of months on, on, on Wednesday nights. Um, but that's, there are some things that are described there that are kind of like this. That is the perception, like, so for instance, one of the, one of the things that Tolkien describes in the Notion Club papers is the experience of having a dream in which you directly experience weight, itself like mass without sense perception. Like the only thing that you perceive is like weight. Um, and it's like pretty trippy, like, and it's really hard to translate that into language that makes sense and that we can, um, uh, and that we can talk about. Right. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, Again, when you read on fairy stories, the implication seems to be that fairy and drama is like the highest level of artistic accomplishment. And in a sense, of course, you could say that at least from Frodo's perspective, the, um, the final stages of this, after he gets past the golden mist above seas of foam that side upon the margins of the world, once he passes the margins of the world, which of course is an interesting element in itself, right? Once he passes the margins of the world, he, 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 it, it fails for him, right? He is no longer the, uh, he's no longer receiving, as I say, the transmission anymore. Um, and so for, it's not to say that the art is failing in the sense that the elves are now officially doing a bad job, but it is no longer attuned to Frodo's wavelength. You know what this also reminds me of? And this may not help many of you. Um, but if you know C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, think of the scene at the end of Paralandra when Malacandra and Paralandra, the two, uh, the two Eldila, are appearing to Ransom. And they are asking him, what is a suitable appearance for us uh, to appear before the king and queen of Venus? And, um, uh, and they try different appearances. Right, some of which are like confusing, some of which like 
damage <laughs> ransom, and he's like, God, no, it will drive me insane. Um, and basically, they're, they're trying to hit the right wavelength, right? You know, they're like, what? How can we attune ourselves so that you can receive what you know we're transmitting? Um, and to some extent, I think that this um, that, that that's like what's happening here. Again, I, I don't think that Frodo has the mental or perhaps artistic apparatus uh, to receive this. It's possible, Belongspawn, that the more times he's spent listening, the clearer it becomes. Um, if he stayed at Rivendell for, I don't know, another 17 years, maybe maybe he would. You know, does Bilbo have the same experience in the Hall of Fire? Um, I think he does. I think he does, Bilbo. I don't think Bilbo's gotten used to it yet. I think it probably takes more than that, because remember... Um, he, that is to say, Bilbo is going to s- sympathize with Frodo and say it's difficult to stay awake here, right? And I think that that's a testimony not to Bilbo's narcolepsy, but to this back to this experience. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and. Rinros, sure. I've been saying artistic. Uh, I definitely don't think it's intellectual. Um, uh, Rinros is saying, could it be a, a spiritual apparatus? Like, you know, when I talk about what apparatus is it that Frodo is lacking here, right? That is uh, uh, for him not to receive this particular uh, creative transmission or artistic transmission. Um, spiritual, I think, maybe works. Uh, I don't know. I have to admit, to some extent, I'm I am almost as leery of the word spiritual as Tolkien was of the word magic. Um, not quite. Uh, I'm not quite as shy about it. But but again, it, I, I'm not sure that that's quite the right word under the circumstances. But may, maybe something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Flamifer, maybe. Let's see. So Flamifer is offering an alternative reading, um, which it's not that he's unable to fully receive it, but that he loses himself. So he's thinking of this in more of like a, uh, through a sort of a Buddhist lens, right? As just as in Buddhist meditation, one loses the self and sort of joins the universe and has one's consciousness opened, uh, to that. Is that what's happening to Frodo here? Um, that is possible. Um, there are two things that um, uh, there are two things that lead me to suspect that that's not what's happening here. Um, one is okay. Hang on, let me make sure I, I'm saying this carefully. One is that the cues that were given, the descriptors that were given, um, are, are negative, not positive. <laughs> Let me not say the words negative and positive in a Buddhist context. Um, they are like bad things, not good things, right? Um, it suggests to me not that this is some kind of constructive or, 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 or good spiritual progress, but rather something is going awry here. Um, first it says it became more and more dreamlike, which is potentially kind of neutral, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing, but what it does mean is it's becoming more and more disjointed, more and more separate from 
first it was like a perception of, of a reality, a reality that was strange to him, a reality that was fantastical to him, but still a recognizable reality. Now it's starting to leave that reality behind, right? Um, but then this river, which again, it could, I mean, I, I can see what you're saying, that it could be like that, you know, I am now one with the, with the, the, you know, the flow, the, 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 the gold and silver river, right? It's a spiritual river. And yes, I see the jokes that you guys are making about spiritual boulders. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual river, right? Um, so I can totally see that argument, um, uh, uh, Flamifer, but, but notice then it, it drowns him, right? It drenches him and drowns him. You can conceivably see that as like an extinction of self, but again, I, I don't see that. Um, the throbbing of the air around him, then drenching, then drowning, and then sinking under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. This seems to, I mean, it's a literally a downward progression, but it seems to me, again, this like things are, things are falling apart. Things are kind of getting worse and worse for him. Not, I think more and more clear, more and more free. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I get it. Again, I, I, I see about achieving Nirvana, leaving reality behind. I, I, I see that, but again, that doesn't seem to be the, the, that's not the direction that the narrator's language seems to be pushing us, right? Um, again, dream to throbbing, you know, dream to some kind of suffering, low-grade suffering, right? The throbbing of the air around him, the drenching, the drowning, and the sinking. Um, uh, he's being, again, it's just, it's, it's, he's being overwhelmed. He's going under here. Um, that's the, that's the imagery. That's the metaphor. The metaphor is of a drowning person, not of someone who is coming out of themselves here. Um, so yeah. So that's what I mean. I, did I say I had two reasons? That was one. I, I wonder what the other one was. Uh, let me see if I can recapture it. Um, it wasn't something as simple as I don't see Tolkien doing a Buddhist thing. That's not what the other one was. It was... Uh, yeah, the sinking imagery. Lost it. Sorry. Don't remember the second thing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the, the, the final end point is oblivion, uh, on, on Frodo's part here. Um, now, Ray Burns is asking, is Olmo a part of this? You know, I was um, thinking about Olmo here for a couple reasons. First, Frodo's having a dreamlike experience, right? And we've seen the sea involved with that before. And of course, the sea sighing on the margins of the world was just happening there too. And then we get this river associated, you know, river and dreams, both of which are associated with Olmo. Um, so there were some like incidental things that were making me think of Olmo here too. I can't think that there's anything directly connected there because again, this is the Elvish, this comes from the Elvish song around him. It's, it's, this is, uh, this is his response to the, 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 the songs and the poetry that he's hearing, um, rather than, uh, um, rather than, uh, uh, 
you know, any kind of intervention from the Valar from beyond. Does that prove that it's not? No, not necessarily uh, at all. But yeah, um, JJ says maybe the elves and Elmo are on a party line. Um, I would also say just because this is not, you know, just because this is coming through the poetry of the elves doesn't necessarily mean that Olmo isn't taking a hand in it any more than when something is happening through the actions of the Valar. That doesn't mean Iluvatar isn't involved, you know? Uh, I mean, the boundaries there are often kind of, uh, uh, kind of un, uh, uncertain, uh, and, uh, uh, unclear. Um, but, um, Anyway, so when he's asleep, he then wanders long in a dream of music that turned into running water. Hey, there we go. I'm thinking about the running water again uh, uh, there with old Mo. Um, and then suddenly into a voice. It seemed to be the voice of Bilbo chanting verses. Faint at first, and then clearer ran the words. Bilbo's song sort of emerges out of his dreams, out of his now unconscious experience, um, he now goes into not something, he's not just having an experience which is like a dream. He is now having an experience that is a dream, right? Um, and uh, um, out of that comes the voice of Bilbo chanting verses. I also can't help but notice that it's Bilbo's song that in a sense brings him back out of this. Um, if, uh, if we can sort of map this, right, as Bilbo starting, you know, yeah, no, I think I do want to map it this way. Uh, Bilbo starting over here, right, and having a, uh, you know, sort of plunging down into this artistic experience until he sinks to the bottom and he's asleep and actually dreaming, uh, though still probably experiencing the Elvish poetry around him. Uh, I don't think, by the way, that just because he's in a deep realm of sleep doesn't necessarily mean that he's no longer being influenced by the singing. Again, it's all in the Notion Club papers, right? That's easy to happen. Um, because he's having dreams, and his dreams are very likely connected to and tied with the songs that are happening around him right now. But then he emerges up out of this again. Like, he is brought back up through this water-like experience, and he re-emerges out into the primary world as Bilbo is chanting, right? As he's hearing that. Um, and, uh, again, that seems to me a very interesting thing, that there's... It's almost as if, I don't want to say that Bilbo's poetry is an antidote to what's happening to him, because that makes uh, that makes the Elvish poetry sound like a poison, which I don't think is really true. Um, but um, um, but Belong's Bond, it does, in a sense, reverse the experience. It brings him back. It gives him something to attach to, in a sense, again, it seems. Um, it is a tie back to the mortal world. That at least seems to be, or, or it's, or almost a way that it, um, um, it's like a path that he follows back. A mooring point, says Boomful. Um, almost like a, uh, again, I'm, I'm imagining it as like a, 
like someone's throwing him a rope, right? And he's being he's being brought back up to the surface or hauled out of the water, out of the you know the 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 river of the swelling uh, gold and silver river. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, um, yeah. That actually, that's really interesting, Winrus. Um, so, uh, Tormarthen is saying, "I wonder if large quantities of Hobbit poetry would throw an elf out of whack." And Winrus responded that elves exist in both worlds simultaneously. Hobbits only exist in one. I think the elves would be fine. Yeah, except they don't necessarily exist in exactly the same world, or at least they don't look at it in the same way. Um, so I, I, I think they'll survive it. I, I don't think it affects them. I don't think that the elves are having any kind of weird out-of-body experiences while they're listening to Bilbo. Um, I suspect they're just more a little bit sort of puzzled by him. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so... I think I am not going to start the poem tonight. We shall save the lifeline for next week. Um, I said there's a chance we could do the first stanza, but that would be foolish. Even I am too wise uh, to think that at this time of night, uh, when we're already going on two hours of discussion here, uh, that uh, it would be a good idea to just do a stanza of poetry too um but um anyway yeah um so let's not do that so let's let's leave it here and we'll pick up with the poem next time we will see how much of the uh yeah it's true we, we might blow a fuse to our marthen and i'm sure a bunch of you are on the verge of uh, uh sinking under the shining weight of our discussion into a deep realm of sleep anyway just because of the time of day um so um let's um let's pause uh, and we'll leave Frodo in his dream state, and we shall re-emerge there with him next week uh, as we begin uh, uh, Bilbo's great poem, uh, uh, my uh, also my second favorite uh, poem of Tolkien's. Um, so we will um, we will do that. We will do that next week. Uh, thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. We're going to switch over twitch.tv slash signumu for our field trip. And everybody is welcome to join us there for our Lord of the Rings online field trip. Uh, so thank you, Twitter folks. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. All right. Okay. So uh, we're looking at uh, Gondaman today, right? Gondaman, yes. We had gotten up uh, to the edge of Gondaman and then um, stopped on the on the doorstep. Um, <laughs> and in particular, we were told that oh, let's let's talk about that as we go. All right, off we go. Oh yeah, yeah. And we can't. We still can't do a direct horse anywhere closer, can we? Think Kalanda? No, no. Yeah. Or Thorns, it's equidistant between Dwyland and Thorns Hall. So. Yeah, well, we might as well ride through the terrain we have covered. 
Uh, so. Just to backtrack at any rate, I, I love all these passages that Tolkien does about music and song. It always reminds me so much of the the passages like in the Kalevala where they're getting the sun back from Pokiola mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. having the army of of men with uh, Kantales, a kind of harp. Um, right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And just how that's their magic in that world. All sorcery yep. was knowing songs. So I I love these these hints and nods to it. But also just how Tolkien viewed music in the first place. It was a divine gift from Eru. So any moment where you're being swept away from music is your connection to the mean? divine in this world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean that and that's you know, from the island away on, that kind of thing is definitely is definitely at play. And you're certainly right about the Kalevala influence. I mean that's um I think it's 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 when Tolkien talked about the Kalevala, you know, and he talked about he usually talked about the language. You know, Tolkien was you know such a language geek that he was always like Finnish. Oh, Finnish is so great! I just loved Finnish, and and I'm it's not that I'm doubting him. Like I'm not questioning that that's true, and that he really you know Finnish the Finnish language really did speak to him. Uh, you know, in this very important way and everything. I, all, all that stuff is perfectly true. But because he spends so much time um, uh, talking to, uh, uh, to the, uh, yeah, about the language, you know, he didn't talk nearly as much about what he, like the, way, the other ways, the more narrative ways in which the, uh, <laughs> and sort of mythological ways in which the, the Kalevala influenced him. Um, but I, that is clearly one. The 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 the. I think the the Kalevala is probably the the best way to begin to understand the link between music and magic uh, in Tolkien's yeah. world. It's it's the it's the thing that's most similar. It's not exactly the same. Uh, I mean, I, I don't no. really believe that. You know, it's like it's just the Kal. You know. It's the same. It, it, I but. mean, it's it's barely mythology. It's like a it's like a microcosm of mythology, where instead of eight hundred tricksters, we just got the one, and we got the the one wizard and the one hero, and the right. one brash guy gets into trouble. And that's it. That's all. That's all we can afford. We have to huddle around these archetypes for warmth. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I know. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, really interesting stuff there. I'm yeah. I'm very much. Uh, uh, an amateur at the Kalevala. I've only read it a, a few times. I'm not. I'm not. Uh... Yeah, you, <laughs> you kidding? My favorite thing is the day the Earth froze in the MST3K version. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I was. I had. Some pole. So, <laughs> I had um, uh, yeah, I was. There was. There was one point at which I paused when we were watching the, that MST3K uh, with my kids, where I sort of paused it. And I'm like, okay, let me explain about the Sampo. I'm like, no, never mind. Like, I, I, I'm like, it's, 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 um, because uh, I think it's a strapless evening gown. <laughs> well, I was, um, I was, I, I, I was wondering whether it was, like, in my opinion, it was the funniest moment in the original film, not in the MST3K riffs on it, but in the actual film when. They were like, but what is a Sampo? And I'm like, okay, that's kind of an inside joke because, like, the fact is nobody actually does know what a Sampo was, like, was in fact. Um, you know, a Sampo? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, uh, but anyway, yeah, no, it's, um, uh, 
that that was uh, that was very. Needless to say, I had never seen that film before. The MSD three K was not something I knew of. Yeah. Uh, and I was I was uh, very surprised. I'm like, I can't believe that this is just a straight up Kalevala film. Uh, weird though it was. I'm like, I can't believe I'm watching a film version of the making of the Sampo right now. Uh, a Swedish version of the Finnish tale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A Swedish version of the Finnish tale uh, being made fun of by MST3K. So that was a really fun uh, experience. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So Gondaman is now coming into view in the distance. Now, the thing we were yep. discussing at the very end last time that we were wanting to explore this time is that the deed quest insists that, the deed text, I should say, insists that Gondaman was an elvish fortress taken over by the dwarves. Now, this matches what we were noticing about the architecture, uh, that is the actual stone Right of which uh, the the building materials right that mm-hmm. uh, that vertical blue vein and the that you know brownish gray stone um, you know we saw that down in Kelladul that's the that's the 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 stone that marks the archaeological era of Thorin's Thorin's people right in the last mm-hmm. couple hundred years um, yeah, yeah. so this is obviously a dwarvish place except we were told that it's mm-hmm. not that it's in fact an elvish place from a distance. We can't see a lick of evidence of that. Like I see no, even memory of elvish architecture necessarily. That is, you know, uh, in, um, like no actual remnant. Um, this pull the other one. Yeah, exactly. The spires on the top, like the very topmost spire. I like to try to convince myself that that looks a little bit like the top of the towers, um, you know, like near the vineyard and stuff, but it doesn't really. It looks like an no, it looks like a dwarvish marker. It's uh, yeah, it's and, like itself. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, so when they say they renovated it, we can just assume they meant raised to the ground, raised to the ground, and the <laughs> built entirely anew. Yeah. Um, yes. Because you can really see. I mean, all the way down. This is not even built on other foundations or anything like that. I mean, it's. Nope. No, like right, yeah, even right down to the rock sticking out of the rock over here, we still got the uh, the Celtic knotwork foundation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, um, and of course down to the paving stones, which we've seen have been dwarvish throughout. Though, as we said, it seems likely that Thorns people um, uh, had been involved in that before. Now, Matt was asking, and I think it's an interesting question, what about these bridges? Like, again, obviously, dwarvish construction, we see that that dwarvish not work along the side. Um, the, you know, the very geometric shapes here, the, the you know, the, the sort of the triangle and diamond shapes and the, and the squares, all very sort of dwarvish in what we would expect. Um, but just like the concept, you know, that he's, um, um, oh yeah, Taweth, yes, uh, Arkenstone, yes, we're just arriving here, we're on Arkenstone, and we're here in Gondaman. Um, yes. Uh, so Matt's... You mean these walkways? Or the yeah, walkways these here? walkways, the, the, the walkways without railings, um, you know, well, he was saying... Yeah, I was going to say, without railings was a clue that it might be <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, this is a very a very marked feature of, of Gondaman, right? We get all this, 
uh, no walls up here on the top, you know, no battlements up here around the top. And we get, um, again, all these, all these, these open walkways, which are very airy and don't necessarily seem, uh, um, uh, seem very dwarvish necessarily. Um, except it looks just like the harbor. It does. And also we did see walkways like this, like in the North and I'm always forgetting the, the names, uh, the, that dwarvish city in the Northern part of the North Downs. Othricar. Othricar. Yeah. Um, now they weren't this high up off the ground, but we did get these kinds of overpasses, uh, there. Yeah. That's, that's the weird part. This does not seem as dug into rock as the other ones, other dwarven structures have. They're either nestled in a valley or they're up against a cliff face yeah. or they're into the mountain itself or something like that. Well, this, um, yeah, well, this structure itself is just on a hill, which doesn't seem very dwarvish. Right. I mean, very natural in one sense in that, like, it's a pretty good idea to, um, yeah, I mean, it's, exactly. It's a very defensible position from a non-underground people perspective, right? I mean, it's it's that's not how dwarves normally think about defending themselves. They don't normally yeah. think of castles on hills. They normally think yeah. of, you know, underground yeah. things. Yeah, they're like the kid who pushes their bed against the wall so nothing can creep up from behind. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Um, uh, so in that sense, perhaps... Uh, you know, that there's there's this sort of very indirect thing, right? So there was an elvish city here. It fell into ruin. Now, as Deathman is quoting for me the, uh, uh, the, 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 the text again, um, and the, the, it does emphasize in the text the dwarves later rebuilt the stronghold to their liking, right? So it, it does clearly emphasize that they their renovation like was rather thoroughgoing. Right, exactly. They didn't like any of it. Yeah. Um, and also that it that it had fallen into ruin. Um, so it's not yeah. like it was a perfectly functional fortress that they were like, oh, no, no, we can do better than that. Um, it had been ruined, um, and they just scrapped it and started again from scratch. But again, the fact that they started again from scratch here is still suggestive um, that... Is, still perhaps in that sense inspired uh, by the Elvish fortress in that, like, you know, there was a fortress here. And so they're like, okay, this, yeah, okay. This is a pretty good place for us to build a fortress. Um, and so they built now, it here. Now have, we, have we seen the red pillars before? Usually the ones we've seen are green. These look more like Jasper or something. Yes, we have seen green ones. Can somebody remind me, did we see red ones in Caladool? I can't remember. I thought they were only green ones, but I'm not positive. Yeah, I mean, I remember the green ones, definitely. Yeah, this is definitely some kind of red quartz. Yeah, I really like the the little obelisks on top of everything. It's cute. Yeah. It's like toothpicks in a sandwich. Yeah, like on top of everything. No battlements, but... Um, oh, there's, there's a statue up at the very top there. Right before the, the tallest spire. Oh, yeah. I think it's the one of those axe statues. Yeah, like like this guy? 
Uh, it's like that guy. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, bigger though, given the scale. Yeah, probably. And these are the same guys that killed her with, the, yeah, with the fully realized axe. And here you can see it even more clearly, which is really fun, right? The actual dwarf figure is extremely bland, right? The yeah. only look at the only things that stand out here. You've got the axe. You've got his male shirt underneath, like that. What looks like his tie, right? Uh-huh. You've got his crown, and then you've got you can see his his he's got like bracelets on his wrists peeking out, right? Yeah, his wristers. Yeah, but so only the metalwork, which seems to be made with real metalwork, right? Yeah. Um, and that's in in really careful detail, but the the like the face is just kind of scratched on. The interesting thing to me is that he does seem to be wearing armor, but that's not realized. I mean, those look like that looks like you know plate armor on his shoulders, but we're not interested in that. We're only interested in like his under you know, corslet or whatever, and his axe, and his bracelets or bracers, and his... Well, that's what the fancy helm. work would be. That's yeah. That's where you show off your artistry. I guess so. It on. Yeah, on your shoulders? Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe maybe they just got weathered a bit. Right, and then, yeah, his, the, and the then his feet... The rest of the face is pretty... I- yeah, it's stylized. It's, it's stylized, right? Exactly. It's this big old mustache and and then a, a sort like, of a beard and it's yeah, like a chainsaw carving. Yes, it does look like a chainsaw carving, actually. Yeah, and then look at his feet. It's just like okay, vague robe and and there's a little gesture towards feet peeking out the front, right? That's what artists do when they don't want to draw feet. <laughs> <laughs> just two little bumps sticking out at the bottom. Yeah, it's like putting hands in pockets. It's a classic trick. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, because hands are so hard. It yeah, it shows you their priorities, but it just shows you their priorities. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I, this is. I think it's. This is just a really fun testimony. Oh, look, and he's got a belt buckle too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Priorities once again. Yeah, he's got a belt buckle too. Well, and you know, look at look down there. There's there there's still a thriving market now. That yeah. So you know, having statues like this is almost a form of advertising, especially if you're the Smith who made it. Yeah, but no, I mean, this is clearly how they this is just clearly how they think, right? How they how they prioritize. I I I love this touch. I think that's really great. Ooh, banner. Sorry, just I've been staring at the statue and I even noticed the banner behind it. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. And yet, Catriona, you're right. He he does look like he's wearing mittens. You know, his hands are very uh, vague. But yeah, looking at the banner. Okay. So we have... Longbeard. Three diamond shapes. And then we have that thing, in the, the gold thing, which is a hammer. I think it's hammer-ish. I can't. I thought it was a face with a long beard. Maybe at the bottom, you mean? No, at the top, the gold thing. No, I mean at the bottom of the thing at the top. The bottom of the of the bottom of the gold thing, thing at the top. 
Well, it might help if I up my graph. So there's the gold thing, which looks like a letter T. Vaguely T-shaped. It's got a sort of a pointed end cross piece at the top, and then the sort of shaft down at the bottom. Um, oh, yes, now I see it. Yeah. It's a war hammer. I, yeah, I took that for a war hammer, but it's an awfully strange haft, if that's it. Because, I mean, like, you, there's no place to actually hold it. It's, like, if that were an actual it hammer, sense. it would be so, the haft would be so fat, you couldn't even hold it. Um, ceremonial. Yeah. Or also, I wonder if that's not a hammer at all. Uh, maybe that's a... It almost looks like something that could be like a metal that you pin to your chest. Like the thing at the top and then a dangly underneath it, oh, you know? Like, like on the top of Roman uh, centurion banners, right? Oh, it, uh, oh, you mean a signum? Yes. Uh, it could yeah. potentially be like that. Signum. <laughs> and I messed that one up. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm familiar with that. Um, um, yes. Um, Hmm. I don't know. It might just be pareidolia, but I still think I see a face in that. Well, I see what you're seeing there. Again, in the bottom part of it, right? The eyes and the, the long pointed beard at the bottom? No, at the very, very top, those two indentations near the top look like eyes and then a nose and then a very long golden beard with ornaments oh, in it. very top. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not seeing it. I don't know if maybe my graphics are higher not. than yours. It could be. Or once again, maybe we're just seeing what we see in it. Maybe we're just seeing maybe it's, shapes. it's like a golden cloud shape Rorsch here, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Test. <laughs> the dwarfish Rorschach test. Yeah. Ooh, hang on. I can see it below us too. I'm trying to see if I can oh no. Get a little closer and no. Oh Druid's fire brought up something interesting. The lamps up here are blue and the ones down in the marketplace are red. Dude, I didn't even register that there were lamps, full stop. Okay, hang on. So this is... Right in front of us. Well, yeah, but just because it's right in front of me doesn't mean I noticed it. Um, Okay, so let's see. Definitely some sort of phosphorescent blue. Yeah. um, Is that a crystal? Yep. Okay. So it's a luminous nice touch, very mythic. crystal, yes. Very mythic. Um, huh. So, but the ones on the ground floor down there are red. Uh, the ones by the market. I'll have to go down and look at those. But, yeah, um, yeah. of course, blue... You know, blue fire, blue lamps... Of course, make one think Ooh, of bangs. the fan, yeah, of the Fanorian lamps, um, and one wonders if these weren't sort of inspired by that. Now, presumably, this is just crystal that was discovered. Do you think it was made? Maybe it was made. Yeah, some kind of crystal lamp, maybe. I thought it was to complement the blue veins, uh, blue vein stone that they used to. Well, it certainly does complement it nicely. I can't maybe believe the red ones complement the jasper. Maybe. Can't believe I haven't rivendelled any of these bridges yet. Um, I'm trying to see if I can't remember. 
if there's a oops I've lost my cursor I hit it when that happens oh there it is okay no. um I'm trying to see if I can get any closer to even closer to one of these banners yeah yeah Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, Tharvidir was just noticing this over here, too. Yep. All right, well, we can't do much better than that, I think. Yeah. Oh, we're actually on top of the awning. That's fun. Um, <laughs> okay, yep. Uh. Yep, Spiritual Cushions is reminding us of the light of sun and star and moon and shining lamps of crystal hewn, undimmed by cloud or shade of night. They're shown forever fair and bright. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that does seem to be what we're seeing over here. Um, not here. This is the banner. Mm-hmm. Noxy Key, you think it's a crown? Maybe. Weird kind of crown. Like going to your spinal cord or something? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it still it still looks like a signum to me. I can't unsee a signum. Right. Quite possibly. As is common in a lot of the yeah, they do look a little bit like gears, Katron, I agree. Like a lot of dwarvish art, there seems to be just sort of a lot of like not work in geometry here. Um, yeah. Those round things that look like gears, Katriana, I suspect of being non-representative, like they're not meant to actually be representative art as much as just kind of geometric, conceptual, um, though they do look wheel-like, certainly, like coins. To, to, do they, do they, are they meant to evoke wheels and coins and gears, all three of which things would be valuable, you know, uh, valuable parts of Dwarvish culture and trade and uh, industry. Wealth and mer merchant. Maybe it's a symbol that this is a market. Right. This is a place where coins are traded for goods. Uh, look at the look at the texture on the cloth as well. It's made to look like it's a cut piece of marble or something. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah, at first I thought it was actually just how it was hanging, but no, I agree. It It, it, it does look like it is representing uh, something, maybe not exactly marble, but something kind of like that. Well, it looks like a design you could make with, like, marble marble tiles and gold inlay. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you so. Wonder if that, was that first, and then the tapestries came later to mimic that? Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, Deathman, thank you for that. I was I was wondering, and we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more later, uh, whether or not this was a Gondaman-specific symbol, or whether this was... Um, uh, I don't know why I'm still on my horse. That's one of my big questions here. Um, but um, uh, whether this was a, a sort of a broader symbol, uh, you know, something that we saw... You know, so is, is, is this a Thorin's banner, or is this a Gondaman banner in particular? So he says it's a Thorin's banner. We will see it in Thorin's Gate. Um, Interesting. I'd love to see the context used... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I, I totally was standing on top of an awning while on a horse like a boss. I was rocking <laughs> that. Okay, so now here I we have some real fire, but lamps. of course that's a milestone lamp, um, yep. which is in a sort of a different category. And, ah, here are the red ones. Aha. Uh -huh. Rock, yes. sand, 
You don't have to wear that. Okay. You don't have to put on the red light. Is that what you're? Is that you? Is that what yeah, you're, yeah, what you're yeah. suggesting? <laughs> yes. Sorry, I'm backing up to where I can see them both. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And um, yes, definitely, I agree with you um, that uh, the red is clearly designed to complement the red quartz or whatever it is that makes the little red obelisks while, while the blue highlights the blue in the uh, those vertical lines all the way through yeah that's lovely okay now look at this Ground floors forges workshops <laughs> <laughs> look at this look at this dude down here so this contrasting to all of those semi-generic metal crafting Statues. Here we get a totally oh, this... different dwarvish statue. He's got fingers, a, right? Uh huh. Eh, sort B, of. He's got, I know, fingers ish. More fingers than the other guy had. It was just wearing mittens. Um, yeah. He's got knees, and legs, <laughs> and elbows, and he's a, contrapasto. A, and a real beard. Um, uh -huh. uh, he looks like he's about ready to start his aria. Um, and he, <laughs> and he's got, a, he's got none of that metal work on, right? Nothing, uh -huh. none of that, like things that stands out. Um, he's got a nose. Yep. But he so, has... as I mentioned, the, the stance he's in, Contrapasto, this was pioneered by the ancient Greeks uh -huh. and, um, it was a much more difficult pose to do. Um, it requires a lot of finesse to get that balance exactly right and to make it look like the weight is distributed on both feet without it falling over in metal posts right. going up through. That's what the Romans did when the art was lost. They'd put metal posts up or they'd make them leaning on rocks or, and logs and stuff right. because they couldn't figure it out. So this is, implies that their art style and ability has evolved a lot since the other statues. Since or it was the, made by someone more highly skilled. Right, since the chainsaw statues that we were looking at yeah. before. With... <laughs> the really, really impressive metalwork, right? Because, again, that's clearly the the sculptor who sculpted the dwarf who's holding the axe and wearing the crown and the uh, and the corslet and the, the brace is barely trying, right? Because um, he's totally uninterested in the actual uh, figure. He's only interested in the figure as a, as a, as a mannequin, right, to support the metalwork, which is clearly the point. This is a totally different guy. He's got no metalwork, but not only that, he's got nothing. I mean, like, I'm kind He's of surprised. No sword, no shield, yes. no axe, no nothing. No, I mean, have we seen a bare-handed statue anywhere? No, but there is a broken shield here on this table over here. This is the scholar's enclave. Whoa. That can't be his shield. Maybe. Besides which, I don't believe he's wearing a shield. What's he doing with his thumb and forefinger? I... Could he be holding something in his right hand, or have been holding something that's been lost? Could be. This, the fact that this is the scholar's enclave sort of indicates that they're studying it too. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe this is like a Moria art style that got lost along with Moria itself. Right. Yeah, I'm he trying. His to... weapons were made out. It had like wooden hafts or something, and they rotted away over the. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Katrina, I agree. I do think that the sculptor of the other statues, the one we were looking at up there, was not incompetent, just uninterested. It's a deliberate choice to keep the details of the figure sketchy. Um, Because you're you're obviously supposed to be looking at the axe first and foremost. But this is so far in the opposite direction, not only, you know, as you're saying, a much more dynamic figure and a much more interesting figure to look at, but he's got nothing. He's got a crown, but that's all he's got. He's this holding is nothing. Like the dwarven equivalent of David confronting Goliath and nothing, right. you know? He's got right. no weapons. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well we gotta we gotta look to see if see if this guy or this sculptor. Gesture. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it is. I, I I'm gonna be very interested to see if we see any other statues like that uh around Thorin's area. Thorin's yeah, Thorin's Hall, yeah. Yeah. See what other kind of art that we get here. Oh, I love I love the geometric style on the columns here and then the the brazier. Yes, I mean just as you get um uh, just as you get lots of intricate, you know, vines and flowers and things in Elvish architecture, mm-hmm. you get these really interesting and ornate, um, you know, line and geometric shapes in in dwarf architecture. Art Deco, very Art Deco. Yeah, and yet, no, I am not seeing one scrap of actual leftover elf ruin anywhere. Yeah, you would never know like that there was an the elf. <laughs> no, no rubble, no nothing, nothing at all. Down to the cobblestones, nothing. All this is one hundred percent dwarf, all the time. So they certainly did so make it over to their liking. Get pretty high. Yeah, I know you can actually get up pretty high in this structure. By the way, I forget just how many floors you can go up on this. Yes. Yeah, you can see the guy patrolling up there way up and uh, uh-huh. towards this guy. He just went behind the tower from where we're standing. But just as you said that, I looked up at the tall tower and you could see this dwarf walking around the top walk up there. Um, yep. Yeah, cool. All right, well, it is after midnight. So after a fun and thorough examination of Gondaman which has long since forgotten its elvish roots. Perhaps the stones still remember the elves, if you could talk to them about it. Um, in fact, that would be interesting. I wonder what the, el- what the, sto- you know, the stone, we know what the stones in Eregion say about the elves who once lived there. I wonder what the stones around here say uh, and uh, what they have to say about the dwarves, their current occupants, and if they like the, if they think it's an upgrade or not. It would be particularly can interesting to talk to the, to talk to the, <laughs> The stones here. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, okay. Um, so right. let's uh, uh, let's leave it here. We will continue on past. So we've, we've passed sort of the middle range here. Um, let's go up in the northern, uh, along the northern banks to that. Yeah, we need to go to that dwarvish city that we saw up due north here. Um, across the road and up against the mountains up there, which we saw from a distance, but then we thought we'd come up from Gondaman. So we will we will continue to move over into the dwarf area, and we'll begin to see, having established uh, the characteristics of, of what seemed to be typical dwarvish architecture here, uh, if we can see how we can see that 
uh, developing and what patterns, larger patterns, we can begin to observe as we uh, as we go all the way through. So anyway, thanks very much, everybody, for joining me tonight, and I will see you guys again next week uh, when the fundraising campaign will have started. So that'll be fun. Woo-hoo! All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. All right. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.